discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. This is Mexi, and I I'm, ha- I'm having a time. <laughs> I am having the time. It is the last month that I have too many jobs all at once. Uh, it's the last couple weeks of my lecturing term. I have some fantastic guests lined up that I am so excited to bring to your ears. <laughs> um, but this month, I'm going to be releasing two really amazing talks that I had with activists and academics on my YouTube channel. I posted about this on Patreon, and everyone said that they were very interested to have me release both of these on the Vegan Vanguard. So that is what I am doing. The first, what you will hear today, is my talk with Abby Martin about U.S. empire under the Biden administration, looking at his very scary cabinet picks and the way that his administration is, uh, you know, posturing or the the policies that they are either enacting or planning to enact in various countries of geostrategic interest of the U.S. Um, It was a really fantastic conversation, and I was actually just speaking with Abby and Robbie Martin, uh, her brother, on their podcast, Media Roots. So I believe this will be coming out around the same time, so you can go and check out my talk with them on that platform as well. I will link that in the description box as soon as it is available. And the next talk that I am planning to release um, probably next week or maybe just a a few days after this one will be my talk with Dr. Richard Wolff. Well, my series of talks that I will kind of edit together uh, where I spoke with Professor Wolff about COVID-19, about the end of capitalism and about building a post-capitalist future uh, in part through democratizing our workplaces. So I very much hope you enjoy, and thank you so much to all the patrons who stick with us even through the the hard months. Um, Next month, I'm going to resume with some amazing new guests, uh, and I'm really, like I said, just really excited about it. Before we get started, I would like to say that this is a donor-funded show, so if you would like to become a sustaining member, you can go to patreon.com slash veganvanguard or give us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website. So thanks to new patrons, Elijah, Christian, Nahian, Daniel, Fenya or Fenja, and Dom, and thank you to Seth, Trivo or Trivo, and Sarah for their generous donations on PayPal. I 
am here with the amazing Abby Martin. Uh, for any of you who don't know who Abby Martin is, she is a prolific journalist and activist and documentary film producer. She's the host of The Empire Files, which you can watch here on YouTube or at theempirefiles.tv. Um, she's the co-host of an amazing podcast called Media Roots Radio, um, and she's also the director and co-producer of Gaza Fights for Freedom, which is an incredibly important documentary film that you should absolutely check out if you haven't already. Um, you can check it out at gazafightsforfreedom.com. And she's just a really awesome friend and comrade of mine. So thanks so much, Abby, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mexi, for that great introduction. And it was so cool to collaborate on the film tour with you. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget it. It was an incredible event. So super yeah. stoked. Yeah, super stoked as well. Um, so yeah, uh, America's back, Abby. You must be thrilled. <laughs> We're back, baby. We're back. We back, dude. We're back. Yeah. Are are you thrilled? Or you must be thrilled. I'm I'm super stoked. I mean, yeah. we all just we're just at brunch, brunch all day, every <laughs> yeah, day. Yeah, we're all not day doing a goddamn thing now. So we did it, mm -hmm. babe. We, we did. did. <laughs> we did. Um, so I thought that we could start with maybe going through some of Biden's, you know, super diverse, woke, imperialist cabinet picks. Um, so, you know, who are, who are these people, basically? What can we expect from them? And what should we prepare ourselves to, to fight them on? Um, so mm -hmm. let's begin with uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, because um, he seems like a treat. Yeah, no, he is a treat. And he is probably the most important figure because he's replacing Mike Pompeo, the genocidal maniac, uh, crazy religious zealot who literally thought like the rapture was around the corner. Um, he was just such a, a crazy, scary figure. So Anthony Blinken coming in and replacing him, everyone's like, oh, my God, like, we're back. <laughs> like, again, yeah. back. But really, like, beyond... Uh, the rhetoric it's kind of hard to see major foreign policy differences um and you're right like this is all kind of touted as uh the most diverse cabinet ever right and i feel yeah. like that that was joe biden's intention was trying to just pack this cabinet for full of people of color of women um because we all know in neoliberal america in the u.s empire that is that's a big thing that's kind of pushed down our throats this kind of cynical exploitation and weaponization of identity politics to manipulate people and to think that it represents some sort of progressivism or progress in general um but really beyond beyond that kind of superficiality it's just the same old uh warmongering wrapped up in just a different window dressing so it's yeah. really it's really shameful because of course it's of course it's a significant symbolic thing to have someone like Kamala Harris as the first black vice president you know just like it was yeah. very symbolic and monumental to have Obama win the yep. presidency um, mm -hmm. but beyond beyond that it is it is just very very uh, upsetting to see these figures uh, still pioneering the most disastrous you know murderous human uh, foreign policy, excuse me. So Anthony mm -hmm. Blinken, um, you know, he's a white guy. So, so, uh, so but, um, but he is just a, a super weird guy who, who comes from this, um, consulting firm called West exec advisors. This is the same firm that he co-founded with this woman named 
Michelle Flaherty, who was on Biden's shortlist to actually be in the same position. So everyone was really stoked that he picked Anthony Blinken because they were like, oh, well, at least he didn't pick this woman. But it's like, OK, mm-hmm. you co-founded this advisory firm with this this really, really um, this woman who has a lot of bloodlust. And so you guys are obviously good friends. Right. And what West Exec Advisors is basically touted as as like a, a firm that helps expedite weapon shipments and arms sales to the Pentagon. So helps the Pentagon mm-hmm. like ship their products around the world and they kind of act as an intermediary between you know, different foreign states like in the Gulf or Israel or other human rights abusers. So Anthony mm-hmm. Blinken, um, aside from being a part of this kind of shadowy investment firm or consulting firm, he also goes back to the Obama administration. And even before that, he's been in the government for a long time. He was uh, actually Biden's closest advisor in 2003 mm-hmm. when Biden pioneered like the Democratic wing of support for the Iraq war. So yeah. Blinken was in his ear whispering to him about the Iraq war and Biden, of course, you know, is, is infamously having to retract that and apologize for that because of just how disastrous that policy turned out to be. So it is kind of worth mentioning that Blinken was his closest advisor during that time. Um, mm-hmm. He also is on the record being a hardline staunch advocate for the war in Libya, which also turned out to be a huge monumental disaster, still a failed state today, and also mm-hmm. is on record saying that we should have done more when it came to Syria and is still actually advocating for the overthrow of Assad. So he thinks that we didn't go far enough, even though Syria is a complete disaster as well because of U.S. policy sanctions. You know, the list goes on. So mm-hmm. Anthony Blinken is just your he's just your typical pro-war neoliberal who just masks his warmongering and humanitarian language. He cloaks mm-hmm. the same exact policies that Mike Pompeo was promoting, just in a more gentle tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we'll see that when it comes to a lot of these cabinet picks, it's really, really disturbing. And we can go into the policies later because Anthony Blinken has a lot to say and he's done a lot already when it comes Mm -hmm. to these key foreign policy policy positions that really kind of paint a picture of where Biden's headed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. I mean, I almost feel like the neoliberal warmongers are more dangerous and effective than the neocons because at least everyone hates the neocons, right? Right. But for someone like this, it's like, okay, this seems pretty uh, insidious. Um, Yeah, very much. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the the first woman director of national intelligence. How exciting. Um, <laughs> Avril Haines. Um, yeah. What, what can we expect from her? Yes, Queen. She is <laughs> super, super nice. Uh, that's what everyone in D.C. is talking about, how sweet and nice this woman is. Very, very just a big old sweetheart. Right. Mm -hmm. Like even the director of Human Rights Watch is on record being like she is probably the nicest person you have ever met in your life. And it's like, okay, well, that makes me feel so much better about her (laughs) running the DNI. This is a coalition of 17 intelligence agencies. The DNA, you could actually go back to like the fallout of Russiagate and the DNI came out with this report, this blistering critique pretty much of Russia today. It included my show breaking the set as Mm -hmm. part of this huge dis on behalf of Russia to basically foment radical discontent in the country that gave us Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was their whole like end-all be-all report. So she's in charge of this coalition of intelligence agencies. She's basically America's top spy. Um, but I'm not sure how much drone victims will care about how nice this woman is. 
because when it comes to actually her record, it, it's pretty simple. I mean, she, is, she was instrumental in crafting the legal framework, quote unquote, legal framework for the War on Terror's killer drone program mm -hmm. uh, that she oversaw under Obama. Um, she was so instrumental in it, in fact, that she was actually, she says that she was summoned in the middle of the night sometimes to sign off on these machine murders on behalf of Obama. Um, and she also is uh, complicit in kind of the CIA cover-up of torture program, which was, of course, this huge scandal under the Bush administration uh, that Obama decided not to prosecute the torturers. Um, mm -hmm. And Avril Haines is kind of part of that look forward, not backward um, by covering up the perpetrators. She was part of the cover-up, helping protect the people who destroyed the evidence um, when they hacked into those computers to destroy the evidence uh, when there was some sort of attempt to hold them, you know, partially accountable for that scandal. So just really mm -hmm. gross all around. She's also on record praising um, Trump CIA director Gene Haspel, who literally like sadistically got off on torture, according to CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou. It, mm. it really gross stuff. Right? So when you go beyond like how nice she is and the fact that she's a woman, because mm -hmm. that's, of course, all you'll hear about is like, it's the first woman yeah. to run this agency. Um, well, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're a woman or not. You're a horrible person and you have a lot of blood on hands. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who died around the world yeah. uh, that are collateral damage from these policies. Oh, and and of course, we can't forget she also comes from this shadowy, weird group, kind of like a West Exec Advisors, except worse. It's called Palantir. It's this data mining corporation that was born and bred by the CIA who that is complicit in like a grave human rights violations, um, including like ICE roundups and all of these other things. And Palantir is also an investor in the think tank CNAS, Center for New American Security, that she sits on the mm -hmm. board of. So again, like revolving door conflict of interest where she's getting, she's on the board of this think tank that is also, mm -hmm. you'll see this think tank floating around in a lot of Biden's foreign policy picks. And it's not only funded by weapons contractors, it's also funded by this other company that she's also invested in. So it's like- <laughs> Good God. Yeah, I know. And like, how is, how is this, like, it's just right out in the open and it's still just like, yeah, yes. that's just how it is. That's just how it is. So that's absolutely incredible. Um, and yeah, it's really disappointing because everyone focuses on, you know, like, oh, well, the glass ceiling has been broken, but mm -hmm. you only get to be a, a woman in that kind of a position if you are a patriarch, <laughs> like if you are right. a violent patriarch, like they're not going to, it, it's not going to change anything, you know, exactly. um, because they're violent institutions. So anyway. No, that's um, such a good point. I mean, you don't yeah. get into those positions of power unless you play by the rules. So it's like exactly. whether, you know, being yeah. a woman doesn't really change the structure that you're representing. So Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess along those lines, we also have the first Black Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Um, so tell us about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this perfectly... Uh, this is perfectly emblematic of what you were just saying, because this is someone who was born and bred out of the exact same institution that, you know, he's now he's now heading. He was a four star general. He oversaw the expansion of the Iraq war, the troop surge in Afghanistan, um, pretty much every war he's been there in Yemen, of course, Syria. So under the Obama administration, I think he was the head of central command. And interestingly enough, when 
Trump hired Mattis um, to run the same position. It was like this huge scandal. It was like, oh, my God, this is supposed to be a civilian, a civilian running this position. And now you're just appointing a general like how gross and, you know, how militaristic um, and what a conflict of interest. And it's like, well, what happened to that? <laughs> Biden just literally did the <laughs> thing. So it became normalized to Trump. But now Biden did the exact yeah. same thing. And I think it just shows you like. It, it just shows you how much not only of a revolving door and I'll get into like how egregious this really is because he's a board, he was a board member of Raytheon, one of the top weapons contractors that Biden is actually using to negotiate all of his arms deals already. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, it just shows you like how insular this this network and this kind of bipartisan foreign policy consensus really is in Washington, that these people just circulate around these very you know, insular institutions and they're just being revamped from the Obama administration. It's just like they just mm -hmm. get plucked out of the Obama administration and they're just back. Um, and it just it's just really strange. It's like there's no new blood. It's just the same exact key figures. And we really have to take Biden at his word when he says nothing will fundamentally change <laughs> um, because it doesn't even mean, oh, let's go back to the Obama administration. It means like literally nothing that Trump did will mm -hmm. fundamentally change. Um, right. And we're just re-inheriting this expansion of empire that Trump oversaw, mm -hmm. which is really, really gross. Um, and Austin, you know, not only is he this four-star general, not only did he leave the army and go immediately to Raytheon for the last four years, um, he's, he's back. So he just immediately exits the revolving door of one of the largest defense co contractors and goes right back into overseeing um, war making as the mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense, he's also slated to make $1.7 million um, that he claims like it will have no impact whatsoever on his policymaking, right? Like who who really believes that? <laughs> like you are an empty suit. You're going to be taking $2 million from Raytheon. Of course, it's going to influence everything that you do. Like mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's not even funny, you know? And he claims yeah. like, oh, I'll recuse myself from all decisions, including Raytheon for my entire tenure. It's like, of course you won't. Raytheon is involved in everything that's going on as i just right. mentioned biden just signed this massive arms deal for this right the right-wing government in chile and also egypt and raytheon is the crux of of that weapons contract so mm. i mean you know what is this guy gonna do like just mm -hmm. leave the room and be like okay like someone else yeah. um find the paperwork it's just mm -hmm. it's really really gross and really nothing else needs to be said about him because that really just says it all it's like someone who just it, you know stems directly from the war industry and is just placed in this high level mm -hmm. position and then again it's just the corporate media saying how amazing it is that he's the first black secretary of defense mm -hmm. yeah how is any of that even legal <laughs> you know like how yeah, how is right. any of that legal at all um and yeah it's, it's just really devastating because i just feel like um, Trump has done so much that um, the Democrats are, yeah, like like they're almost not to say like they're happy about it, but like they're not going to walk that back. Like they're just going to use that strategically um, for their own, um, you know, imperialist goals, right? Um, so uh, maybe we can get into some of the the policy now and what's going on in terms of foreign policy with Biden's administration. Um, so I thought we could maybe look at you know a, a, a few places of interest to U.S. empire and talk about you know what what they've been doing or not doing. Um, so maybe we could start with Iran um, and talk about the sanctions that they've been facing um, during this global pandemic and um, how Biden is handling this you know re-entering the the nuclear deal. 
Yeah, it's not good at all. And this is something that we thought was just a built-in given when Biden got elected. And this is something that I was very hopeful for. I think a lot of people were hopeful, not only because a lot of people in Biden's cabinet were instrumental in the actual initial negotiations of the nuclear deal, but also because he was saying it on the campaign trail that he wanted to re-enter diplomacy with Iran. Trump's maneuvering this hostile uh, warmongering against Iran, threats of annihilation, immediately upending the nuclear deal, uh, slapping 800 plus sanctions on Iran during his term, the constant war games uh, in the Persian Gulf. And then, of course, in the latter half of his term, the political assassinations, I mean, assassinating the top general Soleimani and also Fakhrizadeh, the top nuclear scientist in Iran, was mm -hmm. all designed to try to subvert Biden, right? Um, not all of it, but I mean, in part, mm -hmm. like really to try to destroy any sort of semblance of, di of diplomacy whatsoever. And of course, going into the Biden administration, you know, he was even like putting out leaks through um, through his officials that he would actually try to start a war with Iran on his way out the door. Anything that was possible to really make this more difficult for Biden. And it turns out he didn't need to do any of that <laughs> because Biden wasn't going to try to engage in diplomacy at all. Um, mm -hmm. Tony and his secretary of state has been on record saying, you know, and, and we are not going to lift the sanctions that Trump put on. And that's pretty much all Iran is asking. They're like, look, um, you guys are the ones who broke the deal. It seems pretty, pretty understandable that you would just eliminate these debilitating, crippling sanctions on our economy that are mm -hmm. actually causing malnutrition in U Iranian children for the first time in like decades that Iran is experiencing this because of these sanctions. They're like, mm -hmm. look, just look sanctions and let's let's negotiate let's renegotiate this and biden and blinken are just saying flat out no they're actually using trump sanctions as leverage to to make sure that iran has zero leverage look biden biden should just make a press conference and be like look we are so sorry uh for what trump did the these assassinations against political figures the assassination against a civilian um scientist like all mm -hmm. of these horrible threats uh, and the sanctions, like, we are so sorry, we are immediately going to start from scratch, you know, and he hadn't done that, and in fact, is making Iran capitulate um, to such an extreme degree is just absolutely beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, of course, Iran breached the nuclear, like, what were they supposed to do? You know, Iran mm -hmm. is not in the process of developing a nuclear weapon, they never have. Um, but of course, you have Blinken out there now saying, he wants to work with Israel and the Gulf states, which they actually kept um, the negotiations in secret from the in the first place. And now they're saying that was a mistake and they want Israel to like be involved <laughs> in the negotiations this time. And of hmm. course, fear about how Iran is like, you know, months away from a nuclear weapon. They say that all the time. It's completely false. There's no evidence to back that up whatsoever. And Iran hmm. is just saying, look, what, what do you want us to do here? Like, what are we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. it's, it's disgusting. It's disgusting to force impossible concessions and place these impossible benchmarks on Iran after everything that the U.S. empire has done mm -hmm. to saber rattle them for the last four years. Absolutely. And especially during this global pandemic. I mean, that's obviously contributing to so much, you know, death and misery um, in the country is just it's absolutely criminal. So yeah. um, I mean, sanctions during a pandemic should be like a it's, it's like a humanitarian crisis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's. 
it's yeah. Um, so uh, I guess let's move to um, Yemen. So Biden has temporarily frozen weapons shipments to Saudi Arabia and is saying at least that he wants to end the war in Yemen. But um, let's talk about what's happening behind the scenes or, you know, uh, is this uh, really genuine? Yeah, sadly, I again, like this is something that I think that we were all really hopeful for with a policy mm-hmm. shift with Biden. And it turns out to be kind of just rhetorical at the moment because there's so many caveats with his recent speech um, in terms of what weapons will not be sold and also like what types of operations will not be supported. Mm -hmm. And it's super disappointing. I mean, like he just gave this big foreign policy speech, I think, on February 4th. And in it, he detailed, you know, we need an we need to declare an end to the war in Yemen, which is a really big moment. And it really is a testament to how much the anti-war movement um, calling attention to this grave humanitarian crisis has worked. Um, Mm -hmm. Because we know Trump could have done this a long time ago because it was uh, proposed to him and he actually vetoed a resolution that would have ended U.S.-backed weapons to the Gulf states that are in the Saudi coalition bombing Yemen. Mm -hmm. So when Biden made this speech, he used some words that really kind of... um, you know, made me take a second look and actually uh, dig through a little deeper. And one of them was, quote unquote, an end to offensive operations. Now, if you look at how Biden and Obama under their administration, how they got into the Yemen war in the first place, it was all painted as a defensive war on behalf Mm -hmm. of Saudi Arabia. So I don't think anywhere in there they were ever saying like, this is an offensive (laughs) operation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when Saudi paints it as defensive because they claim the Houthis are threatening their border. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't understand how you're going to determine what's offensive and what's defensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, the U S has been training uh, Saudi forces. They were supplying the tactical and logistical operations for targeting of the rebels on the ground. And is that going to change? Because that could also be painted under the Pentagon's language as defensive operations for Saudi. Right. You know, and they mm-hmm. even said um, that they are still going to be providing counterterrorism measures and defensive operations from Riyadh and other border uh, places. So it's like, what what does this actually mean and Mm -hmm. then the real clincher is when he talks about what arms sales are ending quote relevant arms sales well hold on i thought you were ending all (laughs) arms sales to the gulf states that are bombing yemen like yeah what is the relevant versus not relevant arms sales and and then you kind of realize that um it it goes back to the whole offensive thing it's like okay relevant Mm -hmm. arms sales that will be used for an offensive operation how are you going to determine that how are you going to trace the missiles that in fact he's still going to sell mm-hmm. um, and make sure that those are not used offensively. So mm-hmm. very, very upsetting. And also um, Tony Blinken is talking about sanctioning the Houthis, even though they lifted the terrorist ex- designation that Pompeo put on them, sanctioning the Houthis that control 80% of Yemeni territory is going to be pretty hard to get mandatory mm-hmm. and that people so desperately need. Mm-hmm. And And then here's like the real like icing on the cake is that um, there's the U.S. empire is still going to be bombing Yemen. Right. (laughs) U.S. is still going to be bombing Yemen to fight Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And that's not going to stop. So it's just it's a mess. But I think that the silver lining here is like the fact that Biden felt the need to make this declaration and announce this policy shift, even though there are glaring holes, shows that there is 
space and our movement to continue to push this administration because mm -hmm. it's a huge issue. We know how desperate the situation is, and we need to keep building those coalitions uh, to pressure the Biden administration because this is not good enough. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's going to take a lot because even, I mean, if you just think about, you know, America's GDP and everything and just how much arms arms sales contribute to that, right? It's like, it's hard to think of them they're going to find some way, you know what I mean, uh, to to totally. still sell the arms, right? So it, it makes perfect sense that they're they're putting these little caveats like, oh, only relevant or only offensive, you know, because there's so much money tied up in this. So, um, okay, let's talk about Venezuela uh, because oh. Biden and Co. <laughs> they are still recognizing Juan Guaido uh, and saying that Maduro is illegitimate. So, um, how are they positioning themselves with respect to to Venezuela? This is one of the countries that I think we all feared wouldn't be that different under Biden, especially since you saw the Democrats like lining up to basically cheer on Trump's multiple coup attempts and, you know, this bipartisan acceptance of Juan Guaido, even he like came to Congress and got a standing ovation from all of these Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and all these other people. And it was just, it was a quite disgusting spectacle to this unelected like U.S. puppet um, who had been just plucked from obscurity and declared the president of Venezuela and like, like brought and ushered on a red carpet in the U.S. halls of Congress, like really, really out there stuff. Um, so mm -hmm. Biden has made clear, even before he won, that he still recognized Juan Guaido as a legitimate president of Venezuela. But now what's funny about it is that Juan Guaido has no political position in Venezuela. He is no longer part of the National Assembly. Mm -hmm. And so you even have 27 states that comprise the EU said they cannot in good conscience like legally recognize Guaido because he has right. no legitimacy there at all but you still have the U.S. including <laughs> Biden and Blinken being like no 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 he's still president like he's, he's that's so good. funny he's good and, and, then, and then, <laughs> like, what is going on here that's um, so funny but but what's it's just like so crazy because sanctions are another such a disastrous thing that had been placed on Venezuela from Trump. We're talking about tens of thousands of people who have died as a direct result of these sanctions. The economy is in free fall because of these sanctions. And again, like no discussion about lifting these sanctions at all. Biden is just using Trump's debilitating sanctions, genocidal even, as just like not, you know, he's just like, well, we're just going to start here where Trump right. left off. And that is like a no brainer. Um, to to not take the U.S. seriously because what is Maduro supposed to do in this situation, you know? And and mm -hmm. Lincoln even said like we're not interested in talking to Maduro. Like it's such a low priority for us that I really fear that there is going to be a coup attempt uh, again very very soon, mm -hmm. and potentially like something would have to do with NGOs or something like that because it's not going to be as um, it's not going to be as loud and obvious as Trump's. I think it's going to be something that's more under the radar and, you know, of course, masked with humanitarianism like they always mm -hmm. do. But it's this is really why they didn't like Trump in the first place. When it came to places like Venezuela, you saw Democratic Senator Chris Murphy actually spelling this out on Twitter. He was like, we agreed with Trump's policy, but he he went about it in like an obtuse and arrogant way. And it should have been like more slickly 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow. All right, man. Like way to spell it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's actually so funny. I didn't know that Juan Guaido actually isn't, you know, doesn't have any political um, position or legitimacy in in Venezuela anymore. That's actually ridiculous. Um, (laughs) That's actually because I know that before people were saying that, like, oh, well, um, you know, he he should be legitimate because technically, you know, the Constitution says this, even though that was, you know, incorrect. At least there was something there. And now it's just it's just laughable. Yeah, he's just Um, nobody. Everyone just hates him. And he's just like, yeah, he, he has zero like standing at all. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So let's move on to uh, Israel. Um, you mentioned this quote that I just wanted to bring up in a recent uh, video of yours um, that Biden said in 2013, if there were not an Israel, we would have to invent one to make sure our interests were preserved in the Middle East. Just wow. <laughs> Really wow. Like, yeah, just really uh, unbelievable. Um, so yeah, I guess talk about um, how his administration is positioning themselves with respect to, to Israel. I know that they are not moving the embassy from Jerusalem. Um, so talk about the implications for um, Palestinians. Yeah, and I think that uh, Biden's quote there really hammers at home what Israel represents to the US because a lot of people are mistaken when they think that Israel somehow controls or dictates U.S. foreign policy. No, quite the Mm -hmm. opposite. And Biden himself Mm -hmm. explained that, that Israel serves as this military garrison. You know, I I mean, for example, look at what the U.S. uses Israel for. Um, When the U.S. doesn't want to outright bomb Syria, they use its attack dog in the Middle East to do so. And so, you know, it's it's something that really needs to be understood. And I think that a lot of people have it flipped around. But mm-hmm. Biden is an unapologetic Zionist. He's made very clear that you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. Um, he probably was probably the most uh, staunch Zionist on stage in the Democratic primary field, like the most hardline supporter of Israel, just completely like did not care at all. I mean, him and Kamala actually were two of the worst and Klobuchar. But um, yeah, so Kamala actually like compared <laughs> compared the civil rights struggle and Selma to like Israeli activism and stuff, like just really out there stuff. But um, but yeah, when it comes to policy shift on Palestine, you're not going to see that profound of a shift whatsoever. Like you said, they are not going to move the embassy. This was something that was a huge symbolic blow to Palestinians, of course, sparked off the Great March of Return. Um, and a, a lot of horrific atrocities that took place in those protests that we talk about in the film. Um, but Palestinians in general, um, their land is being annexed at, uh, in, you know, at a rapid pace. And Biden is certainly not going to do anything to stop that. He's not going to leverage aid. He's not going to do anything. I mean, he, you know, I guess in some respects, it's slightly better than Trump because at least Kushner, you know, at least like people in Biden's administration aren't personally profiting off of a legal settlement expansion like Jared Kushner's family was. And at least they don't have mm-hmm. like, a room in their house for Netanyahu to come stay when he visits New York. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was like pretty grotesque. Like Trump really um, just opened the floodgates and just said, you know, do whatever the hell you want to Israel. And they even like named the settlements after him. And Netanyahu was using Trump's friendship with him as part of his reelection campaign, like that's how much he was signaling to the far right um, about 
the support from Trump. So I guess like in that sense, yeah, of course, it's better than Trump. But at the end of the day, it's just, again, like masking, you know, uh, humanitarianism, but really allowing the exact same policies to continue. I think that one thing that Biden said he would do, which does have implications, of course, because millions of people who are refugees living in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere are in desperate need of the United Nations Relief Agency aid, the UNRWA aid that Trump sadistically just like removed. Mm -hmm. um, he just said I had a blanket removal of this aid that really left millions of people without, you know, medicine and um, urgent assistance. And so Biden has said that he will reinstall that aid. But like, I mean, this is Band-Aid, mm -hmm. obviously a much deeper systemic problem that Biden is certainly not going to do anything at all to address. And yep. the annexation of the bank will continue unabated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um so uh, I have a few more here. Uh, Russia, <laughs> Russia says, or sorry, Biden says that the U.S. is no longer rolling over on Russia. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> I know, right? As if we ever did. <laughs> like, I mean, people think Trump somehow is this Putin puppet. He actually did a lot of crazy shit when it came to Russia. He sanctioned Russia uh, retroactively for the annexation of Crimea, which was just bizarre. He sent millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, of like, missiles and other armaments um, that Obama actually didn't even approve at the end of his term. And Trump has actually like celebrated that saying Obama sent them pillows and I sent them like, you know, missile launchers and shit. It's like, okay. Um, and also just, uh, you know, getting out of these treaties that were very important that Trump did. And of course, like urging NATO members to increase their militarism, because of course, Russia sees the expansion of NATO as something that is rightfully encroaching on their border and violating all of these norms that were set into place after the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union. And so they see that as encroachment. Um, and of course, it's done purposefully. And so Trump only exacerbated that with NATO members. And it is very troubling. So the fact that the rest of the political establishment kept hammering Trump on the Russia thing and made it seem like he was bending over backwards to appease and placate Russia is just absolutely baffling because that's not what was happening at all. Um, so that's what's so disturbing about it is Trump didn't nearly go far enough. Um, you know, and so Biden is now bringing back this crime syndicate of like Russia phobes from the Biden administration, or I'm sorry, from the Obama administration. Um, mm -hmm. Victoria Newland, the one that was on the phone when the Ukrainian coup was happening, saying who she wanted just picked in the Ukrainian government. Like, um, mm -hmm. and then fuck you the have, EU. <laughs> fuck the EU. There you go. Right. Um, and, and just like crazy, like just other people who are just really, really huge Russia phobes who really think that Russia is the greatest enemy of the U.S. and want to focus on it as the biggest threat facing mm -hmm. this country. Yeah. And that pivot to Russia and China, which, you know, Trump obviously was uh, focusing on a lot of different countries. He came into office bragging about the fact that he wanted to escalate wars and win these wars and commit, you know, human rights atrocities and kill terrorists, families and all of that stuff. And, but Biden is coming into office with a more strategic goal of actually like pivoting the focus on China and Russia because it impedes U.S. domination around the planet. And so it's a more coherent ideological goal. And he's definitely resurrecting those figures from the Obama administration who were trying to push Obama the entire time to be more harsh on Russia 
they are back in actually higher levels of power now. Um, and it's very, very troubling. Um, mm -hmm. Who else is at the... Uh, oh, yeah, Samantha Powers is also like another huge Russophobe who's now picked to head the USAID. This is like... This is another front group that pushes regime change, like the NGOization of regime change around the world. They were instrumental in the Ukraine coup. They were from the opposition group there. Um, and she was, uh, she's a horrific anti-Russia figure. And so the fact that Biden is picking her and Newland specifically, and also Blinken, of course, making these statements and every, you know, every interview that he gives and Biden saying the days of rolling over um, against Russia's aggressions are over. And citing as an example of that is the poisoning of Navalny as somehow that's like an affront to U.S. politics was quite perplexing. It's like, how does this have anything to do with a threat to our national security, right? And and the fact that he's like actually handpicking this, you know, this um, controversy in Russia to use as like something that we're going to go after Russia for, like makes zero sense at all. But you're going mm -hmm. to see the Biden administration, of course, uh, pick on the LGBTQ issue in Russia and the Uyghur issue in China to make it seem like the U.S. really, really cares about LGBTQ rights and Muslims, even though, you know, there's <laughs> we can go off all day about the hypocrisy, the astounding hypocrisy with those claims and actually use those to try to undermine those two countries and to delegitimize them because they are worried about the power vacuum um, during Trump that he, you know, he let those countries become stronger in their eyes. And that's really all they care about is weakening those countries with sanctions, with international pressure and building back that imperial alliance of junior partners of the empire, like so NATO allies and, and other things like that to try to put pressure on China and Russia. And it's very scary. I mean, these are two mm -hmm. nuclear armed countries that pose zero threat to the United States and its people. And the fact that, again, the saber rattling, like already Biden is doing all these military maneuvers in uh, the Taiwan Strait and around uh, China to send a signal. You know, it's what mm -hmm. you, like, just yeah. stop. Just stop. Yeah. There's no other perspective that we should have China other cooperation and peace, especially mm -hmm. during a global pandemic. We need to be cooperating with these countries and figuring out how can we deal with the situation together it it's sick these people yeah. are sick yeah and i mean uh, like they i mean they're just such um what's the word um convenient scapegoats right like it's just so yeah. convenient to be able to say that you know everything is china's fault the corona the coronavirus is china's fault um you know everything's russia's fault you know biden is still saying that they hacked our election or whatever right so it's um it's just very convenient they need to keep up these like these like boogeymen you know not only for their own imperialist interests but even for their own like domestic policies so they can just blame everything on them <laughs> you're totally right yeah, like like blm and you know everything yeah, yeah. that happens here it's just like what what yeah what russian bots are trying to like Yes. You know, so discord online. It's like, I don't know. Could it be that your country is a failed fucking state and that yeah. people are actually like really <laughs> upset and that eight million more people have plunged into poverty because of your, your disastrous handling of COVID? Does that have anything to do with it? Or is yeah. it Putin? You know, it's like yeah. and it's also like putting so much power in Putin. It only emboldens him. The mm -hmm. only reason Putin is still in power is because of like anti-Americanism. Mm -hmm. and nationalism and that sentiment just grows stronger every time the u.s cartoonishly depicts putin as like the mm -hmm. villain. it's a mastermind 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so Frank Fletcher says US foreign policy is always terrible no matter who is in. Yes. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> Agree. Well said, Frank. Yeah. Well said, <laughs> well said Frank. Um, okay. So uh, moving to Afghanistan. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Trump and Obama both said that they wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan and then ended up doing the opposite. Um, so what's going on with Biden? Uh, what What is this administration going to be doing with regards to Afghanistan? Well, this ridiculous Trump, war that we've been in for way too yeah, long. Yeah, right. I know. It's <laughs> not like, even a this war. Is, this is, yeah, it's just, it's just like, they want to just like make Afghanistan like a neo colony so they could set up mining mm-hmm. operations finally because there's like trillions of dollars in mineral wealth in the ground. And also, you know, the crux of all these global competitors to get the pipeline going. And then, of course, the opium, which they want to control via CIA drug trade and money laundering um, off right. the book. So there's so many aspects of why the U.S. is still there. Like, it, it's mm-hmm. just like so obvious. It's like, why didn't the U.S. pull out so long ago when it was obvious that they couldn't actually win tactically? Um, and and it, th- there's your answer. There's so many resources that it's like the U.S. has invested for so long, they can't pull out until they actually um, get access to that stuff. And it's, you know, longest war in U.S. history, longer than Vietnam. It's just like so normalized in people's minds now that we're just like, well, it's our forever war. It's like, just kind of like in the background, you know, and that just shows you how disturbing this whole war on terror paradigm is that drone strikes and the war in Afghanistan, it's just like peripherally, like always happening and no one seems to really care anymore. It's only like, mm-hmm. you know, and people gave Trump credit for everything, um, saying he didn't start new wars. He wanted to. In fact, people actually think that he pulled the U.S. out of Afghanistan when that is not the case at all. <laughs> and like they're yeah. like, oh, Trump, Trump oversaw this peace deal with the Taliban. It's like, no, that all of this is fake. You know, like all mm-hmm. this is fake. The deal with the Taliban that the U.S. should have no role in at all. Mm-hmm. Again, set these impossible benchmarks on the Taliban. Like, for example, one of the um, declarations for the Taliban to adhere to this peace deal was like no one in Afghanistan can threaten the U.S. And it's like, how is the Taliban going to um, make sure that that happens? There's like so many resistance groups in Afghanistan. So if someone turns out to threaten or plot something against the U.S. and the deal is just like scrapped. And in fact, the deal was scrapped just days after the last iteration was signed because the U.S. just started bombing Afghanistan again. So Mm -hmm. Trump did not oversee anything substantial there. All he did was withdraw a couple thousand troops that he himself, like he himself doubled the amount of troops when he got into office, he doubled the amount of troops in Afghanistan and increased private contractors like through the roof. And mm-hmm. so when he left in his last month, he withdrew the troop level to now 2,500 that remain. But what just came out, Mexi, a couple of weeks ago that was absolutely shocking to me was that 18,000 private contractors are now in Afghanistan. This is, I mean, this is like four times the number that had been there um, under the highest level of contractors under Obama. I think the level was like 5,000 and that was considered a big deal. And so Trump kind of quietly privatized the war while claiming Mm -hmm. publicly that he was withdrawing the troops. And this is the Eric Prince model. This is what his friend wanted to do, you know? And so it's really, really creepy to think that that flew under the radar. No one was talking about that. What are these people doing I mean, there's so much less accountability for private contractors, private mercenaries, really. Um, And 
Biden came into office basically promising to continue the war indefinitely. Yeah, mm -hmm. he said he wants to end these forever wars. But when he was pointed about um, when he was pointedly asked, like, what will you do about ending the Afghanistan war? He said, well, that means leaving a couple thousand personnel there. And so he was basically saying, we're going to leave a couple thousand troops, which is exactly what Trump did. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's so problematic is because you could easily just increase the amount of troops. If you have troops there, you just easily fluctuate that number and mm -hmm. expand that number. That's why it was so important to remove the troops. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, it goes beyond troops. It's CIA personnel. It's drone yes. wars, bombing campaigns. So Afghanistan looks to be. Um, we're in it for the long haul. And, and I don't know mm -hmm. what that means, but I, you know, it's just so sad that it's just like, mm -hmm. we're just so conditioned to think that this is just something that should be going on forever. And um, yeah. no one really cares about it. And it's it's a disgrace because people are dying mm -hmm. every day. Yeah, it's an absolute disgrace. Like, how, I, I don't even know how anyone can justify um, being there. I mean, even at, at the beginning, but now like 20 years later, you know, um, and yeah, they're, they're posing no threat. And it's just ridiculous. You know, it's yeah, it's incredibly sick. So <laughs> and just and to think like, oh, just make sure that nobody threatens the US like, why like i'm everyone you, sh you should fully understand why everyone there would want to threaten the u.s right, after this right. 20 years of like you right. know like good god um yeah uh anyway uh so i don't know if you want to say, t say anything about china um i don't know if there's been any developments or anything uh with respect to biden's admin in china yeah blinken has basically said that he respects the trump administration's hostile uh, rhetoric toward China. He said that he agrees. Um, and that's a really bad sign, right? And what's cartoonish about it is like people are calling Biden a China puppet when really like they are embracing Trump's aggressive stance on China and pressing to exacerbate it essentially. Mm -hmm. On Chinese New Year, you had Blinken call Xi Jinping and actually like say like a big fuck you basically to the president. It was like instead of being like happy Chinese New Year, <laughs> he was like he was like, we're going to come after you for this, this and this. It's like, OK, um, great mm -hmm. starting off on to do a big reset of the U.S. foreign policy. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, beyond that, they've just made several declarations about wanting to, uh, you know, have a hostile footing toward China in terms of like their human rights abuses and stuff like that. And also, like mm -hmm. I said, the military maneuvering right out of the gates constant war games that china has legitimately recognized rightfully so as like you know warmongering and putting mm -hmm. us on, on a really bad path toward war yeah. and that's that's a really dangerous terrain to be um dealing with for biden yeah but nothing good there and also i think blinken also said like china needs to account for its role in lying about covid and stuff so like just repeating the same rhetoric as trump except yeah. more nicely i guess even though that's still it's kind of hard to like differentiate at this point yeah absolutely you know, he's not coming out and being like the wuhan virus but he's pretty yeah. much saying the wuhan virus you know basically I mean? yeah <laughs> Um, so, uh, faint signals from Vega says Abby has a great empire files, Patreon podcast with her partner, Mike Preisner for as little as $1 per month. Check it out. Um, I agree. Um, and, uh, Justin says Canada oftentimes operates in lockstep with us foreign policy. Um, what is the danger of this alliance? 
I don't know if you want to field that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. And I think not a lot of people are focused on the junior collaborators of Empire. Like, right. You know, and that, and they yeah. like, kind of get a pass when mm-hmm. they are offering military support, you know, yeah. and, uh, and working lockstep. I mean, they just do whatever the U.S. says. And it's pretty grotesque because someone looks at Trudeau as like, oh, like this, you know, uh, like an Obama type figure who really cares about human rights and stuff. And it's like, no, he just answers at the beck and call of the U.S. empire, you know, mm-hmm. and he he just succumbs to the boot of U.S. imperialism time and again. And he is completely mm-hmm. complicit. And it's very disturbing. You know, it's very disturbing yeah. because um, more needs to be done about that. I will say that I feel like Canadians in general are much more astute and aware of their neighbor like there's the giant empire looming over them at all times and you know even just like the palestine issue doing the tour across the u.s and then going to canada it was like i just felt like the political knowledge and understanding was much more advanced in canada and i don't really know maybe it has to do with just like the propagandization of american citizens as babies it's like we I don't know, we're just like pummeled with propaganda about how we're the best country in the world and everything we do is justified around the world. And so many people are just so ignorant of what Mm -hmm. the U.S. is doing. So maybe there's that understanding that goes along with it. But I mean, for example, in um, in Hamilton, Ontario, is that the way you said? I got Ontario I, I got criticized for saying Ontario. <laughs> Ontario. <laughs> like, you didn't know Ontario. Ontario. <laughs> um, for example, people there, activists there, had just shut down armored um, weapons, armored vehicles that were shipping weapons to Saudi Arabia um, mm-hmm. because Canada's a part of that as well. And so they, yeah. you know, the, there's so many actions happening in Canada and people are doing so many things. And I just wish that more Americans were participating um, as well in and building mm-hmm. that coalition across country lines, uh, because we really need an international coalition to fight U.S. imperialism, because there are no borders when it comes to the U.S. domination of the globe. Absolutely. Well, speaking as, uh, you know, a Canadian, I also wish that Canadians were doing a lot more um, because, you know, I think a lot of people have this understanding of like what the U.S. is doing, but we don't people don't actually understand that like the the that Canadians are working in lockstep with them. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have this idea of our armed forces as being just peacekeepers. Right. So it's like, oh, well, you know, the the U.S. forces, they're the ones who are going over and doing all these terrible things. But, you know, if Canadian forces are there, then they're doing like a peacekeeping mission or they're just, you know, and it's just like, well, what does peacekeeping mean in the context of U.S. imperialism? It just means facilitating U.S. imperialism like, and making sure that nobody really stepped like, you know, steps at a line or I, I don't know, even know what that means. Right. So. Um, so yeah, I wish that there was more of an understanding of, you know, what we were doing abroad. Um, cause a lot of times we can just say, oh yeah, the U S the U S is terrible and not really even know that like our tax dollars are going to these things as well. Right. So, um, totally. yeah, so I'll say that. Um, so I want to leave maybe a little bit of time for questions, but I did want to ask, uh, kind of, you know, this big question, um, of, you know, what are some important interventions that you think that we will, um, need to make during this, this administration in terms of anti-war and anti-imperialist activism? Um, and do you have any advice for anti-war activists or or, or thoughts on how we can strengthen our anti-imperialist activism? 
Yeah, uh, I think, you know, as someone who is very aware of U.S. imperialism, I think that we both can agree that this issue needs to be linked to a lot of other issues um, in both of our countries. And when it comes to COVID, especially the fact that, you know, Americans are getting this piecemeal crumbs off the table where you have politicians arguing about giving us $600 or $1,400 one-time checks Meanwhile, every couple of weeks, it seems like the U.S. is just sending hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, to like theocratic dictatorships and human rights abusers around the world or to subsidize health care for Israeli citizens or something like that. It's just like it's it just so <laughs> it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. Um, yeah. So I think that like political education is so key, right, because so many people don't understand like they're struggling to make ends meet and to survive. You know, we have mm -hmm. half of this country is struggling, living paycheck to paycheck. I'm sure COVID has exacerbated that. Eight million more people are plunged into poverty. Kids um, don't have enough food to eat. And so understanding that all of our resources are getting squandered and sucked into a giant, massive military apparatus that is subjugating and oppressing tens of millions of people around the world in our name. And that is why... We are told that we can't have health care. Right. But but mm -hmm. you see like the cognitive dissonance of like looking just at these headlines passing through that the U.S. has no problem funding uh, this oppressive, uh, oppressive regimes around the world, sending tons of weaponry around the world, just oppressing, you know, subsidizing occupations and genocides and all of these things. Yet we're told as the citizens of the U.S. empire that we cannot have anything. We can't mm -hmm. have health care. We can't have stimulus. We have to just stay home and do our part. And the burden is just put on us like, like, oh, you just need to socially distance and do your part and the pandemic will be over. It's like just absolving the entire government um, responsibility of actually like doing something about this and helping the people of this country out. So I think the political education of like linking the struggles together, linking the fact that why we have nothing here, why so many people are suffering, why there are so many people in food lines, um, you know, why there are so many homeless people, just like Martin Luther King said so long ago, like a nation that spends all of its money on uh, the military is suffering like a spiritual death. And I know I just paraphrased and butchered what he actually said. It was probably more poetic than that. But that is exactly what's happening. And it has been happening for the last you know, a couple decades, if not mm -hmm. century. Um, everything that we do is squandered and sucked into this apparatus. And it's time that we start linking this together and understanding that we need to end the U.S. empire. We need to end U.S. imperialism and focus on building up um, infrastructure and things that people really need to make our lives better, right? And to stop criminalizing and terrorizing all of these people around the world like because mm -hmm. black lives matter was such a huge monumental event that happened here over the course of the summer and it's still happening um and black lives matter everywhere brown lives matter everywhere and that includes people who are being drone bombed special operations who are raiding villages in somalia um, bombs dropping on yemenis all of these lives matter every life matters that the U.S. extinguishes around the world. And we have to kind of get that internationalist perspective and approach to really understanding these things don't stop and start um, at the border of our country. It is, mm -hmm. it is happening everywhere. And so once your perspective widens, um, then, then we can start to do the, the real work, but it's building coalitions, right? And it's, mm -hmm. and it's 
uh, and it's working with other organizations like Medicare for all and, and just mm-hmm. bringing that, uh, that political knowledge of, of um, where our money is really going. Um, mm-hmm. So we can really fight for the things that we need and, and want in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, the Empire Files Empire update is so important because I think um, for a lot of people, like, as you said, a lot of people, you'll read the headlines and it'll be like, oh, Biden's ending the war with Yemen. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Like, it, and people won't actually know all the stuff that's going on um, to encourage them to get out and, you know, form these coalitions and, and really start to fight back. So um, definitely knowledge is power. Um, Cause if we're going to get people uh, you know, excited enough to come out into the street, they have to know what's going on. And if you read the headlines, like you have no idea what's going on, right? right yeah, media, yeah, you have no idea Iran what's going on. Yemen are two flashpoints right now. And uh, for the anti-war com- community, people who have been involved in the anti-war struggle for a long time, you know that certain moments will happen that we need to be ready and mobilized in order to get the masses in the streets and help facilitate the struggle, right? And that was a, a big flashpoint was the Iran war that we were on the precipice of with Trump um, and tens of thousands of people poured into the streets all around the world to protest that impending war. And so Mm -hmm. you never know when those moments will spark and we need to be ready when they do. Right now, of course, it's hard to galvanize people to protest the Afghanistan war. It's like people have no idea what the fuck's going on. A lot of them think it's like not happening or if they do, whatever. But Mm -hmm. Iran is a huge one right now um, that I think people are at least aware of the fact that, you know, that we want peace with Iran, that that Biden mm-hmm. is saying that he wants negotiations with Iran. And so there is room to pressure his administration on the fact that Biden is saying the stuff about Yemen means that there's room to pressure him on and keep organizing and the act, the actual war in Yemen and to stop uh, the genocide that's going on there. So Mm-hmm. different avenues you know of course um of course every conflict is important of course everywhere that the u.s is oppressing is important but certain things that are in the news i think we can really capture the attention and start to steer people into organizing and participating in what needs to be done which is mm-hmm. um strikes putting your bodies on the line um and direct action to to stop these things and shut down business as usual because that's the only way these people will listen mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um thank you to sadhu syrup who says love you both thank you um so i'm conscious of your time um do you need to go at this point or no, I can, um yeah, i can do some q a if you okay if you want. <laughs> uh okay so let's do a, a little bit of q a um so uh Faint signals from Vega says, uh, or wants to know about how the lawsuit against uh, Georgia University is going um, and about the ICC in Israel. Yeah, so the ICC, um, it was a big step, of course, that they said that Israel can be prosecuted. The thing is, I don't think that they will be as long as the U.S. is protecting them. And this is something that you've seen time and again, like at the U.N. Human Rights uh, Council and and you know, the UNGA and stuff of, of trying to hold Israel to account or even simply condemn Israel. And the U.S. will veto every single resolution and the U.S. will just continue to say that they will protect Israel at all costs. So again, going back to like, even though there are international bodies that are even willing to hold Israel to account, the U.S. is so powerful, right, um, that we need to focus on ending this sick... <laughs> <laughs> partnership mm-hmm. um, that will protect Israel and prop it up, even if the entire world 
turns against Israel. And it really comes down to like the subsidization of, of the apartheid state. So it is a good maneuver. It is a good move. And I don't want to like dis discount how important that is that the ICC said that. But at the same time, it's more important than ever to pressure the U.S. and to keep building up the pro-Palestine struggle because, um, you know, it, it's, it's at a point of no return. I mean, even the U.N. itself said that Gaza was going to be unlivable in 2020. And here we are a year late, later. It's like, OK, like mm -hmm. millions of people are living in unlivable, unsanitary conditions with no clean drinking water. And now COVID's there. Like, this is urgent. This is dire, you know, and, and we don't have mm -hmm. time anymore. Um, mm -hmm. As far as the BDS lawsuit, people who don't know, there are dozens of states that have anti-BDS laws on the books that restrict people's free speech rights, constitutionally protected First Amendment rights <laughs> to mm -hmm. boycott um, for political reasons. And these laws are on the books prohibiting like independent contractors from working. They force people to forfeit their constitutional rights in order to work in certain states. So like in my case, I went to Georgia to try to speak at a university, Georgia Southern, and I was given a contract saying I needed to sign a pledge to never boycott Israel in order to work and make uh, an honorarium at a campus. Of course, I, I said I would never sign this and I ended up suing the state of Georgia. It's all stalled because of COVID right now, but one silver lining is Arkansas um, just knocked down their unconstitutional BDS law. So that uh, gives us hope that Georgia will knock down the law as well. Um, mm -hmm. And we have to take these fights to the court because they have all been passed under the radar and it is very, very damaging. And pro-Palestine speech is being censored um, all across the country. It is the front of the free speech issue right now and not enough people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think anyone's really talking about it um, other than you. So yeah, good luck with that, uh, that case. Uh, Blauer T. Tech says, what are U.S. grassroots organizations that organize around U.S. foreign policy that you could recommend joining? Um, well, the Answer Coalition is one that organized the biggest anti-war demonstrations during the Iraq, Iraq war. They are constantly organizing and struggling um, to build up coalitions that put, you know, anti-war organizing front and center, and they are staunchly anti-imperialist at their core. And so I, I organize a lot with the Answer Coalition. I encourage people to get involved, sign up for their newsletter. Um, Popular Resistance is another one that you can follow different actions that are going on. They're centered in D.C. Um, and just following, you know, World Beyond War, um, other grassroots coalitions that they are working with because there's constantly actions going on and there's constantly things that you can do. And even if you live somewhere that, you know, is in a big city or whatever, you can link up with people in your community and, and do things virtually, you know, I mean, there's so many things that we can do and even just spreading political knowledge and showing people, uh, you know, Mexi's videos that are really important because we need to actually get inspired and have optimism about the positive things that are going on around the world, because it's not all negative there are mm -hmm. moves uh, that should inspire us to take action as well. And that's something that you can share as well, because your friends, families, co-workers need to also not be, you know, filled with despair. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah, being awakened to the world of, uh, of political truths and kind of having your corporate media paradigm shattered can be like a very... Uh, very harrowing reality for people and a lot of people just want to tune out completely and not follow the day-to-day because -day it's too 
it's too tiresome, you know, and, and people don't have time to parse through the headlines and find out what's really going on. So follow the journalists that you want to learn those things from. It's our job to do those things, right? And, and spread our material because we're compiling this data for you in order to spread this political knowledge. And again, it comes back to media literacy and political education before we can actually build up movements that are effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, shameless plug. But if anyone wants some positive leftist news, I have a whole channel for that. <laughs> yes, very important. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if anyone else has any final questions, you can drop them now. Um, otherwise, we can wrap up. But uh, yeah, this was so wonderful, Abby. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about all of this uh, with me. It was super useful. I think that um, it's gonna be a great resource for people and hopefully will inspire people to join some of these grassroots organizations and you know, start building networks, start building coalitions and to really fight US imperialism, the whole rest of this administration. Because yeah, I mean, I've, as you've said before, if we don't, I mean, if we don't fight this, if we don't, um, you know, push Biden on domestic policy as well, then we're going to end up with a worse Trump figure in four years time. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, imperialism is such a, a key linchpin in uh, global capitalism, especially US imperialism, right? So um, yeah, for for all, all the revolutionaries out there, this is this is definitely something that we need to be doing in the next four years. So, so yeah, thank you, Abby, again, for coming on. Thank you so much, Maxi. Really appreciate you having me. Yeah. And it's and it just to leave people with this note, like it is very fun and invigorating to link up with like minds. You know, you don't have to feel yeah. like you're isolated in line and and detached from the world. It's it's the most energizing thing ever to actually meet up with like all of my good friends are people who I've met through activism and through the movement in general. And it's it's something that's just super gratifying, you know, and it's yeah, it's a beautiful thing actually to meet and work with the people who are passionate about making the world a better place, passionate about the issues that we're talking about now and who can really have that anti-imperialist lens and perspective and who who get it, you know? And mm -hmm. I just encourage everyone to get out of their comfort zone because we, we can't afford to wait really. And like you just said, I mean, you perfectly just outlined how if Biden does nothing and he even like brags that he will do nothing and, yeah. and if he indeed does nothing, um, the right will continue to get emboldened. The demagogues will continue to get strengthened because people will just gravitate toward who they think will actually change their material conditions, right? And yep. Biden is literally saying he'll change nothing about millions of people who are suffering. So where does that lead us? And yep. that's where we have to come in and fight like hell, mm -hmm. you know, fight like hell um, because millions of people can't wait another day and we certainly can't wait another day and no so it's up to us it's up to us yeah gotta build the movement mexi yeah and we can do it we can do this <laughs> <laughs> we gotta do this um all right well thanks everyone uh this was a great stream thank you for your questions and um i will link all of uh where you can find abby and her work in the description box below and uh we will see you next time bye everybody bye.